Welcome to Technovation. I'm Peter High. My guest today is Steve Philpot, who at the time of this interview was the Senior Vice President, Chief Information Officer, and Head of the Digital Analytics Office for Western Digital, one of the largest storage companies in the world with annual revenues exceeding $16 billion. Steve is now the Senior Vice President and Chief Information Officer of Illumina. He shared his experiences related to key themes from my upcoming book, Getting to Nimble, including process, technology, ecosystems, and strategy, as we discuss the necessity of taking business-appropriate risk in order to innovate. We also discuss the importance of organizations investing in change management, trends in cloud and DevOps, the crucial importance of building up your peer and executive recruiter network, and a variety of other topics. Stick around after the interview to hear more about the five principles of Getting to Nimble, which is now available on Amazon. Also, as a special offer to our CIO listeners, if you purchase 50 or more copies of my book for your team, I'll lead a session on it with your team. If you're interested, please contact us at info at metastrategy.com and learn more at gettingtonimble.com. And now for a word from our partner, Aptio. Digital transformation is a journey, not a destination. Technology decisions teams make today determines the success of tomorrow. That's why Aptio is dedicated to helping companies harness the power of trusted, actionable insights. It's called technology business management, and more than 60% of the Fortune 100 are already using it to speed their innovation. Learn more about how Aptio can help you connect your technology decisions to better business outcomes. Visit aptio.com. And now onto our interview. Our interview began with Steve sharing his thoughts on how analytics can be used to identify opportunities to become more nimble. That's definitely, you know, and I kind of, I kind of categorize it, that in that group of opportunity for change, you know, that yeah. every once in a while you're provided these opportunities and to be able to, to kind of seize the day, seize the moment and, and yeah. use that as as a, a, an opportunity for change. So where where I was going on on that one, and again with the with the theme with the theme of nimble, you know, some of it is around the use, and and there's a little bit of the combination of it. It's the combination of you know automation and analytics that's actually you know potentially driving some of that ability to you know, to, to either be nimble or to, to move faster. And, you know, I think of, I think of a, a, examples like the, the partnership we're, we're doing with Bavin and the crew over at MoveWorks, where you, you've got this, this advanced analytics and it's sitting on top of our ServiceNow data interacting with, with people. But the bottom line is, it's actually allowing us to automate the response of tickets and the closing out of tickets, but that in and of itself actually allows us to, to be uh, more nimble because it actually learns faster than we will. You know, its ability, you know, the, the ability for the chatbot inside of MoveWorks to learn and respond is much faster than in in many cases. I, I shouldn't categorize that. Uh, in many cases, it can move faster than we can, especially when it's augmented with information. So that's kind of where I, I was trying to see if there's a a theme around the use of 
automation and analytics as an enabler. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, actually, I, so I that, think there's something compelling to that. Yeah, I would love to. Maybe we can maybe we could peel back that onion a little bit further. Another area is around um, risk, and this is this is probably the the thing that's that's most difficult for probably the majority of, of CIOs and, and probably others out there is the the ability to understand business appropriate risk that you, you've got to be able to take a little bit of risk because that's what helps move the, move organizations forward. And that inability to take risk that will probably be a limiter to being nimble so that would be another one. Yeah, uh, I, I would. I, I know that not all risk would be categorized this way, but some of the points that you're raising, I've highlighted, which is innovation, which of course is about risk taking. Of course, there's a lens for risk associated with security as well. Like you know, in order to be Ford Knox, you, you could make your company Ford Knox and have zero innovation, right? Take take zero risk, but that's also a risk tolerance question. There's obviously you know, profound negative implications to doing that as well. Well, and that's why that's why I use the term business appropriate risk. Because yes, exactly. It, exactly. It, yep. it's, a, it's a measure of risk that's appropriate for the business you're in, the time you're in. So for for example, my discussions with the board, my discussions with the board around security in this I always use this term business appropriate risk because I in the you know storage industry, I won't uh, invest as much in some aspects of security as let's say a financial company, a financial bank or something. Again, it's because we have different uh, risk profiles. So when you're looking on these maturity curves on where where to spend and what areas of, of the risk kind of curve to reduce, I may not spend as much to reduce in some areas, whereas a finance company or a, a pharmaceutical company that's in a compliance, an FDA compliance. And so that's why that term business appropriate risk works well, because it is on a case-by-case basis. But I did, I did an article, in, oh God, this goes back, you know, so at the beginning of the whole cloud software as a service back in, you know, kind of the... 2008, 2009 timeframe, I, I did an article with Fritz Nelson. Okay. And, and he was, at the time, you know, the article ended up being titled Risk, Maker, Risk Takers and Rainmakers. <laughs> and, it, and basically, you know, part of the, the premise was that you, you've got to be able to take a little bit of risk. For example, at the start of the cloud software as a service, one of the things everybody said was all around security. Oh, you can't go to the cloud. It's not secure. But you had to have a little bit of a risk profile to understand, okay, what areas can I move to the cloud? An example in that particular case was I was in a pharmaceutical company, which is one of the most highly regulated companies out there. But yet, mm. in 2008, 2009, we were leading the, you know, kind of the move to cloud and software as a service. Well, 
how do we do that in a pharma company? Well, we did it because we understood where we could take risk and where we couldn't take risk. And again, that's where that, I, I think that that whole risk theme, and again, maybe putting it under innovations, a, a good a good place, but it has such an important part in, you know, helping to be nimble, helping to, to drive to kind of that next generation capability. Yeah. And I suppose part of that is Steve is because if, if you are in agreement at the board level across the executive team as to the risk, the, the, the business appropriate risk, then you can proceed with greater confidence. It's not as though you're making decisions that you worry are going to you know, lead to your firing because you have not gotten the appropriate buy-in, that you're taking, you know, reckless risk. If, you have, if you've got that framework in place, then everyone can proceed with greater confidence. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a fair, fair assessment because at that point, because they realize that we can spend, you know, 100x more on security and reduce all risk, but that's not going to be good for the bottom line. Another thing, kind of a, a theme through through my organization that I use, is this concept that success breeds opportunity. And I think we talked about it in a couple uh, a couple points, but it's that little wins get you bigger opportunities. But I, I tee it up when I talk to the IT team about, you know, success breeds opportunity and go in there, do really, really well on some of the smaller opportunities you're given, and then it will open up more. So the example is that as I come into, and it's happened across a couple orgs, as I've come into a couple organizations, I might not have had all the all the IT uh, spend in the company under me. And, you know, the IT team say, oh, this group is doing this, and this group is doing this, and this group is doing this. And like, you know, you should go out there and just bring all that into IT. And part of the discussion I have with them is that when we bring it into IT, then we have to be confident that we can do a good job at managing it. And many times, a better tactic is not to bring everything back in, but bring in a couple select things, do really well, and then take that success back and say, hey, this worked well. You know, what are some others? For example, engineering yeah. IT is a, is a big one where, you know, the engineers want to want to do it. They're reluctant to give all of that to IT because they've had bad, bad experiences in the past. They're engineers. They, they know more than you do, you know, whatever the story is. But what I found over several companies is as we went in there, took on some responsibility, did it well, then all of a sudden it was like, oh, yeah, well, now we can go in and have a discussion on another area. And then what you find is over time, you, you've ended up bringing it in, but you've brought it in in such a way that you're able to deliver well on it. And then that ends up allowing the engineering group or the manufacturing group or whatever group you know it is, it's allowed them to move to their higher value activity. So that whole concept of success breeds uh, opportunity is a, is a big one that I use. 
where I see that relevant in the framework is number one, culture, like making that a cultural attribute. Yep. And then number two, in the fourth major section under IT and enterprise partnerships, you know, I oh, can yeah. see it being a communi- communication point, even an alignment, like a strategic alignment point as well, depending upon the sorts of things, of course, that you're bringing to life with these, with these initiatives right. that you're describing, this, the success breeding of yeah, further opportunities. So, so that concept has, has worked. Another one I use is this, this concept called uh, directionally correct. And what directionally correct is, is in regards to, you know, strategy and visioning and, you know, where we want to take the organization. What it means is to, you know, to my team is that we don't have to be perfect. Uh, we don't have to nail, you know, the, the strategy perfect, that it's a, a living, dynamic environment or kind of process. But what we want to be doing is going directionally where the, the trends are. So, again, kind of going back to 2008, 2009, you know, the start of really, you know, the, you know, the early discussions around cloud software as a service. And at that time, directionally correct was going to cloud software as a service. It didn't mean everything had to go up there, but it meant that a, a you know, we should be thinking uh, about it versus putting it on premise or or something else where that really wasn't the direction of the industry was going. The ERP. You know, kind of going back to our discussion about the about the ERP going to the cloud, that was a, a perfect example of kind of being uh, directionally correct on strategy and visioning. Where at the time nobody was, at least not the large, what I'm calling the large um, companies, small and medium had ERP in the cloud with things like NetSuite, etc. But for large industries. It really, really hadn't started yet, but you could see the handwriting on the wall where the direction we were going was eventually large enterprises were going to have ERP in the cloud. Well, if we're on a five to a six-year journey, by the end of that five to six-year journey, we'll be in that direction. And that's another reason why we chose to go to ERP in the cloud. You know, so so that might be another another one, you know, to, to yeah. kind of tie in. And then the other big one for me is, and it's probably in, it's either in the people side or the partnership side, is this whole concept of change management and how how important it is for for organizations to in, invest in the, the the change management aspect of that, and you know part of the you know part of the example here, I mean just even at, at Western Digital was one I had built out a, a change management group within IT. You know I just knew the power of change change management, and so I I had a it was very small, but I had a change management group in IT. When we started the ERP journey, as part of the the program, we proposed having an enterprise change management as part of ERP, and we scoped it out, said, here's how much you would need to invest. Well, 
at the time, they decided not to invest in change management. Well, during the first phase, a couple first phase of the ERP, a couple things happened. One is I kind of partnered with finance and leveraging a little bit of my change management group and you know a little bit of other capability, we were able to do just a little bit of a change management. And then two, at the end of phase one, the I think the company, the executives, the other folks realized that, hey, this is powerful. And what ended up happening is every phase after phase one, we've had change management as part of the approval process and budgeted as a as a separate separate line item. So we've actually then taken it to where we've built it out internally to have internal resources doing change management, enterprise change management. Again, this is things like business impact assessments. So early in the phase, those meetings with all the stakeholders to understand, you know, you know, how do you work now to help them through the process of, hey, you're going to be working differently when this project ends. And how do we get right. the people through at the same rate and pace as getting the technology? Interesting. I like that. Yeah, that's a really interesting example as well. The DevOps one, that's a real big one for us. I mean, we do a lot in this particular area. This ties into the work that we did with the other article on our big data analytics platform. So that big data analytics platform, we actually have an automated CI, CD, you know, a continuous improvement, continuous development environment as part of the big data application or analytics platform. But the other thing that might be of interest in that particular area is, you know, what we're doing, and we've got some of it built out already, is actually platform as a service to where we've built using that same using that same platform that we use to build the you know the big data analytics platform we are now building out platform as a service for other aspects of the organization and that might be uh, containerized services which you talk about down in the technology but the key is it provides guardrails and guidelines in an environment such that we can allow developers from engineering or other groups to come in build stuff, but yet it's built in a governed, sustainable, secure manner. Even in a pharma environment where you once were, which is understandably somewhat conservative, some might say, just because of the, the need for the privacy, security the need concern, for security, yeah, the privacy, exactly, yep. are, are enormous to say the least. And right. And so, you know, the, the thought that, that an organization like that might be an early adopter to software as a service, to cloud technologies, almost seems ironic. And I wonder, <laughs> I mean, not, not so much anymore now that, you know, more and more, you know, entities that are like that or, or that have some, some common constructs to, to an industry like that are doing the same. But I wonder, like, now as your thinking has evolved, what, what, how do you think about, how all in are you with regard to, you know, cloud technology uh, versus on-premise technology? And, you know, I, the extent to which you can kind of offer some 
shades of gray between those as to how you make decisions? So, so we are very much a hybrid environment. Yeah. And what, what I've, I've been saying publicly is at least for the large organizations that they will be in a, a hybrid environment for, for probably um, quite some time. And there's probably several uh, reasons for that. One of them has to do with latency and the latency of getting data from whatever device that you're dealing with to you know, wherever you need to, to process it. It, it's difficult. And while I can get large network pipes in the U.S. fairly inexpensively and get access to it, when you're, when you're dealing with engineering and manufacturing all around the world, you may or may not be able to, to get that capability in the cloud economically. And so for latency reasons, the amount of storage, the, I mean, just the amount of data that you process sometimes in a manufacturing uh, plant, you wouldn't necessarily want to pay all the money to process that all back to the cloud. So you might want to harvest it there locally, do some real-time analytics right there in, in the manufacturing site, that, which is what our, our big data application platform does, and then send a subset back to the cloud. Again, primarily for, for cost reasons. So I think for large organizations, I think we're going to be in this, this hybrid state for a while. And then the other aspect is related to security. And that's probably for some organizations that there's an, there's a driver for them to have, you know, kind of more, more control, more, more access to, to the data. But, you know, again, from our standpoint, a, a large global manufacturing, I think for quite a few years, large global manufacturing is going to be in uh, a hybrid uh, environment, which, which is kind of why you see a lot of, of, of companies. Now, they, they call edge because they're going into edge devices, but I think what that is, is it's also driving a lot of this edge analytics that can be leveraged in our data center. So I think the footprint on the edge footprint on these data centers will shrink, but I don't think it's going to shrink to zero. Got it. But we are, yeah, a, makes- as you said with the pharma, I'm early adopter, very much, you know, kind of a, a cloud first uh, mentality, you know, look, look there and then, you know, kind of prove otherwise, but still yeah. I, I see us in a hybrid for, for quite some time. There are a number of places where it can be proven, <laughs> where it can be proven otherwise, as you just put it. But, but at least go through what? that thought process. And, and actually, that's another uh, good point is for many organizations, there, there's many other, maybe what I'll call targets of opportunity. So there's plenty of, there's plenty of things for many organizations to, to move to the cloud first, you know, fo- focus on those areas. In fact, I think that's one of the big things. I don't know if your book's going to touch on any of the impact of kind of the, the COVID, Corona-19. Yeah, a little bit. But, 
But yes, but I think that is one of the things, one of several things that it's going to do. I think many companies, for lack of a better word, may have been uh, lagging in their migration, whether you call it a digital transformation, migration to a cloud software as a service. There still were a lot of companies that were were lagging. I think what the COVID response and to work from home proved was that the companies that had a strong kind of digital footprint in their communications and collaboration tools, those companies were able to to scale rapidly. I mean, like in our particular case, in 24, 48 hours, our WebEx scaled by, you know, 4X. Our, our yeah. VPN scaled 10 to 15X. Email, you know, all of those type of capabilities scaled and the folks that had all the on-premise solutions, they struggled. And what what's happening is in your cloud penetration, I think for many of those companies, it's going to accelerate the remainder of them in their digital transformation. That that has been a fascinating thing to evaluate, you know, through the lens of the the, the COVID nineteen and coronavirus pandemic is just how you know the lessons of resilience. And frankly, I mean, we, I think you and I may have talked about this before, Steve. But what's been heartening, frankly, is work done by great CIOs, present company included, have really, you know, it's it's amazing the, the resiliency this time around. Compared to 2008, which of course was shocking in its own way, it didn't. I mean, it had a very different dynamic. We weren't working from home. There wasn't the need for virtual work in the same way, et cetera. But right. you know, I, 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 my, my sort of broad analysis of this is, I think organizations are now going through IT budgets where shrinking is necessary with a with a scalpel, whereas in 08 it was oftentimes with a machete, <laughs> right? And now there's just a, a recognition yeah. that there's yeah. there's so much more that IT. You know, that, that first of all, that is 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 necessary and strategic, but at the same time, I think it's recognition of the great work that IT leaders have done in order to improve that resiliency, to be the source of it in many ways. Right. Yeah. No, that's a that's a good analogy. I like that the the scalpel versus machete. So yeah, because we because <laughs> we do talk about it, we we joke about it, but you know, kind of re- referring to it as more a a tactical view of IT versus a more strategic view of IT, which kind of gets over onto the maybe the, the the budgeting side of the house. On the budgeting side, I am very, very big into kind of the, the IT budgeting and analytics side. And to the extent that back in 2008, when the cloud and software as a service was starting, all the all the IT benchmarks. Anybody you went to, KPMG, Accenture, Deloitte, everybody, everybody that was doing benchmarks for IT was all doing it in towers. You know, you have your applications tower, you have your hardware tower, you have your service desk tower, and I said that's not the way things are going. the 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 industry is going to move to this concept of a service where you have a service of email. You have a service of your collaboration tool, WebEx, Zoom, or whatever. And my IT budget needs to be able to, at a service level, say, what do I spend on something? For example, I use email because everybody understands email. The service of email has 
internal labor, it has external labor, it has software, it has potentially hardware, it has potentially amortization, license. it has all these things, all those buckets of cost make up the service of email. It's not just hardware or not just headcount. And so, so what I did in 2008 was I started developing this model that we call cost by service. And this cost by service model, right now for my IT budget, I've got about roughly about 230 to 250 services. And you can stack up all those services and it equals my IT budget. And what it allows me to do is now I can do apples to apples comparison. So for example, if somebody comes to me and says, Steve, you spend too much on email. I was looking at Google. I was looking at, you know, you know, whoever. Uh, I can show them my all-in cost for email and they can shop it around. I can do that for, you know, HR services, for collaboration tools, etc. Well, that ended up being a similar conversation. There was a company called Aptio and in about yep. 2008 2008, 2009, they were kind of doing the same thing. And so, so my cost by service model is similar to kind of what Aptio does, but that's a big part of having this, um, having this discussion. The other aspect of, of that where cost by service, and I still use my cost by service, but the other tool is our total cost of ownership tool. And that's looking at the all-in cost because many, many times people don't look at the all-in cost when they're making decisions on what to invest in. My favorite example on this one was that in, in here in Western Digital, one of the manufacturing sites, they had about they had about 750 servers there and these were these were old servers and you know it was it was hard to keep them in maintenance and everything else but the gm wouldn't buy new servers he said i'm not spending a penny on it i'm not buying another server you we've got way too you know we've got a lot there the servers can just you know just stay and they couldn't get him well between the cost by service model and the total co cost of ownership model, what we ended up doing was showing him that by buying 40 or 45 brand new servers, which were now as powerful as his 750, by buying exactly. those 40 or 45 servers, we could actually shrink his data center, shrink his ongoing costs, and that his cost savings in power alone would pay for the entire project. And he was just like, he was like dumbfounded. He just couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't believe it. But, but it's, it's that type of, and maybe, maybe it's around budget transparency or yeah. maybe it's, maybe it's in conjunction with your enterprise partnership, you know, but, yeah. it, but it's really, but it's really around the, the transparency of the budget. And then the That's other important. item on the budgeting side might be this, and this, this deals with automation. 
And so, so I'll, I'll, I'll pick a big number. So let's, let's say an IT budget is, you know, 2% of, you know, the, the, the company's revenue. Well, all the rest of the spend in the company is bucket B. So hmm. this gets to your conversation that the tactical, you know, the, the scalpel versus the machete, I can either spend a lot of time shrinking this 2% or I can leverage this 2% to automate and do analytics to save on the 50%. I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like doing a Pareto you know, of spend. Well, where are you going to focus your biggest efforts? Well, you focus mm. your biggest efforts on the biggest spend. So I think this whole concept of budgeting and transparency might help move it from the machete, hack away at the the small IT budget to the scalpel, which is, gosh, you know, if I spent a half a million dollars in IT automation, I could save two or three million on the accounts of payable or automation of the receipt of purchase orders. I mean, just... So I think there's there's probably something in that area. And again, I you're gonna you're gonna probably have this perfect bird's eye view because you're gonna be able to talk to 50 of us and probably be able to consolidate quite a few stories. But that that's another that budgeting transparency and how to move from the from the machete to the scalpel and and some of the tricks yeah. in that area might be a, an interesting one outside of your own company. There are, you know, there are constituent groups that you ought to be tapping for insights, for collaboration, to, you know, test hypotheses, these sorts of things. And, you know, this is not an exhaustive list, but at least some of those and with an end towards innovation. But any quick thoughts on that in terms of like the broader ecosystem? On the peers, I mean, I, I think you get a whole thread on this one because this is one where this is probably one of the most in, important networks to build up is your your peer network. These these are the people that are feeling the same pain as you. These are the people where you can call up and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about this, what ideas you have, I'm looking at this company, and they're the ones that'll say, oh, you know, yeah, that works well. Uh, no, stay away from that one. Because again, in many, in majority of cases, they don't necessarily have a vested interest in it. So I think the value of the, the peer network is, is really, really strong. The recruiter one could be another interesting one because this is one where you, you have to establish those relationships uh, early in your career. And it's, it's one of the things that as I'm mentoring folks, I talk to them about is, is having relationships. I'll, I'll give you an example from late 98, 99 to um, 2004. I was with Gateway Computers. And in about 2000, 2002 timeframe, there was a recruiter and he reached out to me. We talked about a job opportunity and, and nothing came of it. It didn't work out for uh, whatever reasons. Fast forward 12 years to 2013, that same recruiter. We had, now, we hadn't talked in 10 years, but 
you know, we kind of had that relationship there for a little bit. Fast forward 12 years, he remembered me, reached back out to me, and that's what got me hired into Western Digital. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. It's it's one of those things where you, you just kind of never know where the paths will cross. Is so So having good, strong, positive relationships, other recruiter that I work with now, I might talk to them about advice. I might talk to them about, you know, recommendations, but it's just, just an important relationship to, to, to have. Yeah. We leverage some of the external vendors from the innovation side. Also companies like trace three, we, we partner with them on areas of innovation. The other thing I'd put in, in innovation is we we create kind of these innovation labs. So like in our big data analytics platform, there's an area in the platform we call the innovation lab, which is access to the core platform, but it's self-service for the functional units to kind of experiment, to innovate. But, you know, it's, you know, we give them access. Now, they can't put it into production. You know, they, yeah. can't go, they can't go against the entire production data set, but it allows them to test drive algorithms, analytics, programs, et cetera. But we, we call that the innovation lab. And that actually maybe it's really around, you know, self, enabling self-service innovation might be a, a, a better way. But that's, that's been really powerful. Plus, the other thing about that it really, really helps strengthen the partnership. This interview featured insights that you'll find in my upcoming book, Getting to Nimble, How to Transform Your Company into a Digital Leader. In an era of unprecedented technology progress and disruption, it's imperative that companies transform themselves to keep up with their digitally native competitors. In Getting to Nimble, I explore how companies, including Capital One, FedEx, CarMax, Domino's Pizza, The Washington Post, Walmart, and others, have modernized their practices related to people, processes, technology, ecosystems, and strategy. And I provide a framework for companies looking to do the same. To learn more, visit gettingtonimble.com.